Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about unleashing courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today we are beginning a new series on the podcast, Living with Ghosts. I know, you thought Halloween was over, but here we are. And forget witches and goblins and werewolves, we are dealing with the scariest ghosts of all our individual and collective past. This whole series is about how we come to terms with the past so we can live into the future. We can release ourselves from from guilt or the patterns that are passed down from generations and forge a new way forward. Today on the podcast, you're going to hear from Reverend Gretchen telling a ghost story, well, a story of haunting from her childhood. But before we hear from her, Each episode in this series, you're going to hear from one of our community members sharing about how they've come to terms with something in their own past. These are really personal stories of coming to terms with the past through making decisions in the present to forge a different future. Our first conversation is with Janine Davis, who's a member of our community here in Fort Collins. She tells the story of the guilt that she lived with as a parent about her oldest child's earliest days. So I'm going to welcome Janine in. So hi. Hi. <laughs> where, where do you want to begin? Well, the haunting for me has been a really profound sense of guilt about my oldest child, my oldest daughter, about her childhood when I was married to my children's father which is not the man everybody knows at church. I have three kids. Rebecca's the oldest. So she was the oldest when I left, when I got in my BW van again and drove from California to Washington State. You say you left. That's that's not just like you went on a trip. Like you right. left. Okay. When I left their father not to not be married to him anymore, which the divorce took a while because I didn't have any money to do that. It was not a good or safe place for us. He's not a bad human being. It just, at the time, you know, it just was not the best place for any of the four of us, especially the children. I could finally see as young as I was, I could finally see that it was not a, not a safe environment for them. And Becca was, very aware of what was going on. I know she was not happy. She was upset. I was very young and wasn't the best example of a mom leaving the dad. I'm sure I said things. I know I said things I should not have said, as did he to her. And that was the beginning of really rough childhood for her. She and I have had a tumultuous relationship ever since. Mm -hmm. We did go to therapy together. We had a really big breakthrough. I was a mess. I was a total mess. I cried that whole therapy session. I finally just said, I just want you to love me. Mm -hmm. And she said, I've always just wanted you to love me. That was huge. And I think we went to one more therapy session and we're good. What was it like to hear that from her? A little heartbreaking that she didn't think I loved her. Mm. 
at least not the way she wanted me to love her. Mm -hmm. So it was heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I don't think she knew I ever felt that way. I think that made a big difference. What happened like after that moment where you're both revealing something that's like heartbreaking, but also like unearthing something like very primal? The, the mist was gone. You know, we could see more clearly each other. It just really opened everything up, just opened everything up. And we have been after, well, she's would have been 39 and I would have been 61 years of really tough relationship, really tough. Um, not that I didn't love her, of course, but sometimes I didn't like her so much. And I'm sure there were times she didn't like me so much. Mm -hmm. What shifted after that moment for the two of you? We both have continued to try to really tune in to each other, not make assumptions. But Becca and I continued to struggle. No, Becca and I didn't so much as I continued to struggle because of her childhood. I spent a lot of time taking care of my grandchildren. When Xander was born, I think I was caring for him three and a half days a week. And there was a nanny for one and a half days a week. Then COVID hit, the nanny quit because she just, I think she wanted to hunker down at home. Now I have Xander full time while mommy and daddy worked. So before this baby came, I actually finally had a life of my own. I was exercising five days a week. I made friends in these classes. We had monthly luncheons together that eventually it looked like I was the organizer. That's kind of who I am. And now I have this baby. I'm the Grammy nanny, as I call myself. So I started thinking about this eventually. So I'm, I'm mostly okay. I also have a therapist. <laughs> so she wants me to think about, you know, my own life outside of being a mother, you know, a nurturer. And I realized a couple of things. One of them, and this has a lot to do, this has to do with Rebecca. Obviously it's her children that I am a nurturer. That's who I am. Since I was a young, young child, I was taking care of everybody. Somebody was sick, I'm bringing them orange juice or whatever, you know, at like eight years old, I don't remember, but I was young. And then I ended up being a non-medical caregiver. Actually, I was a Christian science nurse. For anybody who knows anything about Christian or doesn't know anything about Christian science, they don't use medicine or doctors, but sometimes people aren't well. And so they need somebody to take care of them. That's where Christian science nurses come in. So, you know, like, my home life, I was a mother and a wife. And my work life was caring for others. Then I'd come home and I have the same thing um, because that's who I am. And then now I don't have that job anymore. And I did go through a rough period because I didn't have anybody to take care of. Then I started having a life outside of caring for people. Now I'm caring for people again. And it's, it's part of my who I am, my, the essence of me that I just can't help myself. I just cannot help myself. So then in, in thinking and talking about this, it's like, how do I find that balance? And more specifically with Rebecca, 
this guilt about her young, young childhood just was eating away at me. And I realized that I was trying to make up for it by doing everything humanly possible to help her to raise her children. How was that, that feeling of regret? How was that present now? Like, how, how was that showing up for you in a way that you started to realize that it was? So we had a conversation. I finally was able to tell her how I was feeling. You told how... her about this regret that you had. Yes, I told her that I, number one, that I can't help myself. I have to do everything I can, that I'm a nurturer, even though I, I should probably take time for myself. I, I have trouble doing that. And then the bigger thing was that I said to her, I, I feel like I'm trying to make up to you for what I didn't give you when you were little, when you were a baby, when you were a toddler, what I didn't give you then, I'm, I make, I'm trying to make up for that in some way, that I've come to that realization. And she did say to me, mom, you don't have to do that. That if you knew better, you would have done better, which I have said to her many times over the years. So she's bringing back what I have said. If I knew better, I would have done better, but that doesn't mean that, it, that the memories go away. And it doesn't mean that my longing for her to feel that profound sense of love in my actions that didn't happen then. And part of why I'm realizing more and more better ways to be a parent is because of her and her learning how to be a parent. And we're both learning together so as I'm helping her parent her children, I'm able to express the things that I didn't when she was little. What does that feel yeah. like to have it like to have that second chance? Well, it was telling her this and having her respond to me just again like lifting the mist, the, the huge weight that was on me just lifted and I finally, finally, after all these years, feel free to live today and, and into the future. It's very profound really that I'm not living with that every single day that I wasn't a good mother, that I didn't do the best for her that should be have been, that I should have been. Now I don't think about that every day, which is great. Um, it's just enabled me to go forward instead of staying back here. Now I'm just free. It's huge. It's huge to be able to be free of all that. I can, I, can, I can hear that in your voice and in the, like, you start to smile. It's wonderful. <laughs> the other part I'm still working on, the mothering part of me 
and the Janine part of me that should have a life outside of children. But truthfully, I always wanted to be a mother and I really, really, really wanted to be a grandmother. And I've waited a long time for this. <laughs> my oldest child, my only child that has children, my oldest child had her first child when she was 39. So I waited a long time. And she said today, when I spoke to her, she said she's so grateful that she waited this long to have children. And she's so grateful. And she tells me this every day. She's so grateful that she has me with her to parent her children. I have these kids all day long, but you know what? I'm so fortunate. I am so, so fortunate that I have these children here, right here, not mm. only here, but in my house and in my town and in my life. I mean, I have friends who grandchildren and grandchildren are in other states. Right. But, so we're, we're mutually, Rebecca and I are mutually grateful and my husband too. He loves having the babies here. He really does. What I just hear here, we all have some sort of calling in this life. And that's not about our job. It's about what we're uniquely skilled, desired, destined to do. And that for you is this caring. And it sounds like this, like this coming to terms and being able to like apologize and to kind of name the elephant in the room that was there for you and maybe was there for Rebecca in a different way. Just to get that out on the table allows a kind of a freedom, a liberation to be with the kids without that sense of needing to make up for something. And you just have this opportunity and this opportunity to do it again. It's almost like rewriting that story of who you are as a parent, parenting these small kids. Yeah. It's something. It's a gift. As you think about this and your experience, I know that there's many people out there who, when they look back at their parenting, there are periods in which they regret how they acted. I look back at my parenting for this last week and there are regrets <laughs> that I have. <laughs> and I know like for you, this was, this is a, it was a big weight that you, you carried for years. What message would you have for someone who's, who's walking with that? Until, until this burden came off of me, what I tried to tell myself, um, I think I got it from Maya Angelou, actually, who wrote, if I knew better, I would have done better. And I read that a long time ago. You know, if I had known better, I would have done better. You got to believe it when you say it, too, because just saying the words doesn't help. Because I was very young when I was 22 with the first kid. So I was raising kids in my 20s. And how much did I know? Zip. Nothing. Did I read any books? Nah, no. You got to start there. If you'd known better, you would do better. And every time you learn something new, you realize that's not probably the best way to have reacted to that. Think, okay, what what should I have done? 
what will I think, what will I do in, in, in the future? But I think that's really important because I'm still learning. When you realize something, work through it first, totally. Don't just, oh, this was horrible. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But to realize what could be different. And then when you worked it all through, I think talking to the individual helps. I mean, even when it's your kids, you know, even when it's your kids say, I, I really shouldn't have said blada, blada, whatever it was. And I'm really sorry for that. And I don't want to ever do that again. I think that helps both people, the receiver of the apology, and it helps the one who's giving it, that the one who's giving it is realizing what's not good. And that should help with the burden too. If you get it right away, because I didn't get it right away with Alicia or Rebecca, you know, but if you can catch things right away and realize and then, then do better. And I hear in that this implicit sense of, of grace, really. Yes. The fact that you can know there's a better way of doing it and practicing doing that doesn't mean you're a terrible person. Right. And, and, and I think a lot of people struggle with that piece. You know, they, they feel like, oh, I, I, you're pointing at yourself. <laughs> but just giving yourself that grace and saying, I can't change the past. I know differently now. And I'm going to actively try to live into that new way of being. And then, and then to go to that person that you're feeling that, that resentment or not the res that you uh, regret. Regret. And to say, hey, this is like the inner work I've done on this. Right. I'm not asking you to tell me what I did wrong or what I should do better. I've, I've done this. I saw the impact of this. I've put it through some, some, in, you know, intense you know, scrutiny. And this is what I want to do now. I see this impacting you and this is what I want to do differently. Yes. That's totally it. Thank you. <laughs> you said it. I just summarized. <laughs> It's a living practice, right? I hear that also, that it's not like one and done, that you like figure it out, that it's like this constant process of Every giving yourself day. grace, of learning, growing, giving yourself grace, learning, growing. Mm -hmm. Every, Every day. day is a new day. Every day is another opportunity to learn something new. Sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's just great. You know, that has nothing to do with tripping. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, totally. And falling. So appreciate you sharing your story. Well, thanks for asking. If you're sitting here and saying, hmm, I, I have a story that other people might benefit from hearing. A story that maybe that I've never told publicly or some work that's been going on behind the scenes. Let's encourage you to reach out. It's easy to think that it's only those other people that have stories worth sharing in public. That's not the case. It's actually one of my favorite parts of these podcasts and our online series is that we get to hear from so many more people in their lived experiences. I'm going to turn it over to Reverend Gretchen, who's going to start us off with her childhood ghost story. From about third grade until I think eighth grade, I spent a week every summer at Camp David Jr., which is a camp off of Lake Crescent in Northwest Washington State. I loved everything about camp, especially I loved canoeing on the crystal clear lake and campfire stories. I loved 
especially loved archery um, and relearning skills year after year. I loved the songs we sang each night. I loved everything about camp except one thing, which was the one night when they always reserved for telling the story of the Lady of the Lake. The Lady of the Lake is the story of a woman who had lived and worked at Lake Crescent until one night when she disappeared. Three years later, after her disappearance, her body surfaced from the lake. But her body had been changed. Not in the usual ways you might expect after three years, it had been changed so that it was entirely a body made out of soap. Ivory soap, actually, the records say, which is a thing that happens to bodies, they told us each night as recounting this. It's a thing that happens to bodies when they are in the cold, very cold, wet depths of a lake for a very long time. It's a horrible story. And it was also gripping. I remember as they would tell it and stare out at the lake, overwhelmed at its power to transform any of us so entirely. There was a whole ritual on the night of the Lady of the Lake. We'd go to the camp fountain, which in my mind was it included this statue that I thought was the Lady of the Lake. Although in my adult Googling now, I cannot totally confirm. You can see how I would look at this. And as a child, remember third through eighth grade, I would look at this, hear the story of the lady of the lake and, him, and the lady turning into ivory soap. And you'd be like, yeah, obviously that's the lady of the lake, right? I, I, can't, I can't tell you for sure. Either way, the ritual went, we'd go to the fountain. And they'd tell the story, and then we'd all be given a tea light candle. And then we were to walk down the long winding path. The camp was on a hill, and then take a long winding path down to the lake. And along the way, you find yourself a piece of wood, bark, theoretically, um, northwest. So you'd find a piece of bark, so that then you'd get to the candle and get to the water. And you'd place the candle on that piece of wood and then they'd light it for us. And then you'd set it out onto the lake where some would say the lady of the lake's spirit never really left. Her body changed, but her spirit was still there. After we'd place the candles on the water, back, we'd walk back up to the fountain and then look down upon the lake in the dark with there just our floating flames spreading themselves out in the distance. The water where she met her tragic end transformed into an altar of fire and earth by children decades later. The further out our boats went to the lake, the more darkness took hold. But never entirely, at least not before we were sent back to our bunks for the night, little glimmers of flames or lights continued.
as I would come to know later, it was this embodied message of how the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. When I think about this annual event of my childhood, I mean, it's every one, one night every year for some pretty formative years of my life. I can't help but wonder why. I mean, why did the camp feel compelled to pass this story along to children year after year and not just tell the story, but turn it into this big ritual? make it even more than the story would have been if we just kind of, you know, picked it up by the facts. I mean, it was a tragedy, but also we didn't know her. She wasn't famous, except for this very gruesome detail about her body as it changed, which, by the way, was transformed by the lake where the very next day after this annual ritual, we would take our swim test in. I was talking to Carrie, my partner, about this story and why she thought, I asked her why she thought our camp told it to us and made this whole event around it. And she just shrugged and she said it was the 80s. We told ghost stories back then. Now, I have never been a big fan of ghost stories or the idea of being scared for fun. It took me a long time to understand things like roller coasters, and I still mostly turn down the seasonal invitations this time of year to go to the haunted corn maze or the spook house. I don't love ghost stories, but that doesn't mean I don't get what it feels like to be haunted. To carry with you a story or an experience like a constant companion is to be both caught and also sometimes comforted by something that you just cannot let go of or that won't let go of you from the past. Like grief, it becomes a companion that connects you to what was lost. Long after it has theoretically come to an end, it reverberates in the present, keeping you in two worlds, what is gone and done and what is here all now, never fully in either one. It reverberates in the present, but not in quite the same way it would if it was fully alive. Ghosts have bad boundaries. After all, they show up uninvited in the least convenient times. The middle of the night, for example, becomes a perfect time for the ghost to show up. I mean, where you replay a conversation you've replayed a thousand times before, or the stressful moment in a relationship seems a perfect time for the ghost of only past love to show up. That past love where you're still wondering what if. Or just when you feel ready to make a big and brave change in your life. There shows the ghost of old stories of fear and shame rushing in, taking hold. It is a very human experience. The way the past hangs on, like William Faulkner famously wrote, the past is never dead. It isn't even past. We all have ghosts that haunt us, something that hangs on remorse, regret, loss, shame, pain, personal pain, or generational pain. We are often haunted by ghost stories from our families, 
stories we might not even really know. We repeat patterns we learn by like familial osmosis, the alcoholism and family violence three generations back that was survived but never talked about, transformed into shame and self-loathing a couple generations later, and then transformed into emotional superficiality on that side of the family today, which we don't talk about as anything other than, oh, well, that's just how that side of the family is. They don't like to go deep. We all have these stories, these ghost stories in our family and in our country. I mean, we are so confused and disoriented by our current political environment, our cultural divides, the cycles of misinformation, but we shouldn't be. Like my family system, go back a few generations and we'll find unresolved trauma and losses, pain that we just pushed through and adapted. We never learned the story or we forgot. We lost the language and instead we just have the way things are. Traditions, habits, hand-me-downs. I don't know for sure, but I think this is why they told us the story of the Lady of the Lake. Weird and gross and scary as it was, it was also a way to just tell about the place we were in. Something really horrible happened here, they were saying. Long after anyone with living memory of it has, is, has gone, it was a way to say this happened. And it won't really ever be over even if we stop talking about it. We just lose the words, we lose the story, but it won't really ever be over. And that can be okay because we can learn to live with it. We can find ways to come to terms with it, even make something beautiful out of it. I mean, we made wishes with those boats Wishes, as we placed them on the water, we'd make a wish for the place we were in, the camp. Or we'd make wishes for future people who would come to the camp, our future selves. Or we'd make wishes for our families, for our lives, for our friends that we met there year after year. Somehow this horrible story became hope. We all have our ghost stories. To be human is to be haunted, which doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be the worst night at camp. When we are willing to surface and tell and retell our stories, when we face our ghosts unflinchingly, bravely, we can come to terms and we can come to healing. And together we can learn to live with our ghosts in ways that don't just place us fully in the present, but help us to create a more beautiful future. In the last couple of months, it seems that more people are in crisis, emotional crisis, physical illness, distress, grief, and loss. It's not easy right now. 
And if it feels like I'm speaking to you, well, know that you are not alone. If it feels like you are being called to offer care for others, and it's weighing on you heavier and heavier, you are not alone. We invite us into a time of prayer and contemplation, honoring the weight of this moment and the real ghosts that are present to us right now. Spirit of life and love, when we look around our community, people are struggling. Struggling in their jobs, in their families. They feel the sting of isolation and loneliness, the stress of expectation, the expectation of returning to normal in abnormal times. Many of us delayed healthcare or kind of forgot to go to the doctor over this time of pandemic. And so every day brings news of diagnoses or hospitalization. Spirit, we know that much of what is happening right now isn't because of this moment, but because of what happened in the last two years, in the last five years, in the last 400 years. Because of the ghosts that we carry around us, ghosts in our families and ghosts in our country. As we move through our days, confused and disoriented by our current political environment, the cultural divides, the cycles of misinformation, we try to remind ourselves that like every family, if we go back a few generations, we will uncover that unresolved wound, the loss, the pain and the trauma that was just pushed through, ignored and ad adapted around. It's normal to be overcome, possessed even by the remorses and regrets of this life, these ghosts of the past, the ways that we wish we would have acted differently or acted at all trying to manage the impossible choices when we didn't know better ghosts of addiction the lies that we told or believed depression pain both personal generational and historical it's too easy to be filled with fear that ghost from the future, a specific or general anxiety that keeps us from showing up here and now fully. Behind many of these apparitions is shame, whispering to us of our fundamental insufficiencies and unworthiness. What ghosts are present with you right now? What hauntings of the past claw their way into your days, claiming your future for themselves? Do you know their names? Have you given them names? How do you feel their presence? Spirit of life, Remind us of our strength to have come this far, to keep on surviving one day, one hour, one moment at a time, the strength of simply getting out of bed or asking for help. 
Surround our wounded hearts with grace and forgiveness for the hardest person to forgive, which is often ourselves. Fortify our hearts for the sole work of coming to terms of facing, naming, and reckoning so that we might taste freedom in moments, in hours, in days, or in decades. May we grant ourselves patience, knowing that journey is often long, but it is always worthy. Amen. And blessed be. It's true that this work of coming to terms is not easy. It never has been and never will be. Often it creates a sense of fear within us. We have this fear of the future, of what it would be like if we named it, faced it, were able to feel it or be able to move beyond the ghost that hangs out just behind. And often we feel that fear, that anxiety in our bodies. For me, it's a tightness in my chest, my jaw, my shoulders. Heart seems to beat faster. My world shrinks, restricts. So I made this little video to help us mostly for myself, but I thought you might appreciate it. Help us to remember some of the practices that can create a little bit more space, a little bit respite in our nervous systems to be able to manage that fear, that anxiety, and create just a little bit more space. Ever feel anxious, but you don't know why? I mean, you're going through your daily life and there's nothing in particular that should be making you feel nervous, but you just are. Here's five things you can do. But before we dive into that, there's something you should know. A lot of times we think that anxiety, that feeling that something bad's going to happen, is in our head. But actually, it lives in our bodies. And so there's lots of ways that we can help our bodies start to feel less scared, less nervous, less anxious, that don't actually have anything to do with thinking anything differently. Number one, ground yourself in your body. This simply means feel your body. It could be a matter of taking a breath. Feeling where your body is being pulled down to the ground, where it's touching something or close. Just one second of grounding in your physical body can help your body relax. Number two, orient yourself. Look around your space. In particular, look for doors and exits and windows. These things help your body feel like you could escape if something bad was happening. Physically turning and looking at what's behind you relaxes your body. Number three, do some sensory activities. I love that feeling of being squished and rocking. Thus, this sensory thing is great for me. Engage your sense of smell. Hmm, lavender. Another sensory activity I like a lot is weight. So that's why I have a weighted blanket. Ugh. Placing this on my chest really calms me down. Number four, get outside. Really going outside, looking up and around, gazing at a tree, feeling the breeze. It helps the body regulate, feel more connected to itself. A lot of times when we have this sense of anxiety, it's because we feel like we don't have a lot of control. And so sometimes making small decisions can help remind ourselves that actually we do have control. So it could be as simple as cleaning up your messy office, deciding to go on a walk. The other day I decided not to go to work because I was anxious about work, 
but then because I chose to not go to work, I then wanted to go to work because I felt like I had control over it. So there's many ways that we can deal with our ghosts, but reducing that experience of anxiety is definitely the place to start so that we're able to bring our full self to the table so that we can figure out what the best strategy is. You know, are we going to bust the ghost? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to deny it? You know, we have many ways of dealing with it. And these holdovers from the past often, you know, we can't release them until we've come to terms of what they're saying to us, what, what, what grip they have on us. And that's going to look different for each of us. So I was thinking about some of the ghosts that haunt me and how I've and how I've come to terms with them. And one of the ghosts was that I, I was diagnosed with a learning disability, well, a few of them, in my like sophomore year of college. Before then, I had this deep sense that because my brain didn't work like other people seemed to, that I must be stupid and that I was, I was kind of passing. There was a sense of being a fraud, being inferior, being an imposter. And when I got the test results back, I say it's the best day of my life because suddenly that sense of being defective shifted to just, oh, I'm different. But, you know, 20 plus years of conditioning doesn't go away with one diagnosis. And I still feel that ghost with me. I, I made a little TikTok video about this in which I uh, imagined my ghost, who I named Dave, to be a guy in a Darth Vader costume who kind of follows me around. It's kind of hard to describe on a podcast. But the moral of the story is sometimes we won't get rid of our ghosts, the grief, the loss, the fear. And so sometimes what we have to do is the work that we get to do is all about enforcing that rule, the rule that I have for Dave, which is that he doesn't get to drive. You know, I get to decide where my life is going and Sometimes he can be a bit of a backseat driver, but that's the extent of it. The healing work that I have done allows him to just be there. And I imagine he'll be there for the rest of my life. That's what coming to terms has mean, has meant for me. Coming to terms with ghosts is like this. You know, we integrate them, we metabolize them, even if we don't entirely exercise them from our lives. We learn how to live with them in ways that don't just allow us to live fully in the present and the here and now, but actually frees us to apply their lessons and the way they've changed us and shaped us into a better future. And that is my wish for us and what we'll be diving into our series together is how we can do that for one another. So amen and blessing. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Deeper Podcast. And I can't wait to share the other conversations we've had in our Coming to Terms segment. They're really beautiful. Like I say every episode, I just want to thank everyone who makes what we do possible. We're in this time of year in which we're asking people to think about their financial commitments to our community. And we do that because of how much we believe in what we do. If you're getting something out of this podcast, and you haven't found a way to contribute financially, I invite you to get in touch. You can reach out to us at hello at foothillsuu.org or you can go to our website directly and make a donation. Going to foothillsuu.org slash give is a way of saying, hey, 
I think what you're doing is important and I want to be a part of it. I want to thank everyone who's already doing that, who is considering increasing your pledge to make sure that we have the base to really grow. We get to do amazing things together. It's truly humbling to be a part of this community. All right, well, that's the end of our episode. Until next time, thanks for listening.